0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, November 14th and 15th, convening hemp industry stakeholders to learn, connect, and grow. Details at pahempsummit.com.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I interview extraordinary humans whose lessons in life I want to learn and I want to share with all of you. Today, I have an extraordinary guest, Rose Previtt. Rose is an extraordinary restaurateur with two restaurants in D.C. and about to be so many more, (laughs) Um, Compass Rose and Maidan. If you ever are in D.C., you have to book ahead and run to these restaurants.
0: Welcome, Rose. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. I appreciate it. You grew
2: up in a household with a Sicilian father and a Lebanese mother. And so much of the work that you've done has involved really bringing cultures together. And I'm wondering, in that house when you were growing up, what was it like to have the hearts of the Sicilian and the Lebanese? (laughs) Was it the hearts or the tempers that you mean? I'm not sure.
0: (laughs) Or the food. Passion. Let's call it passion. That encompasses all of it, right? Um, No, it was wonderful. I think there's a lot of personality, a lot of people feelings all the time. A lot of that got directed into the food truthfully you know one of mom's early lessons was if you cook with a bad attitude or a frown on your face it's not going to taste good and she was right to this day I do I do believe her um, she said cook with love in your heart and it's always going to come out right it sounds a little cheesy but she really did and she's not cheesy actually if you meet her <laughs> um, she's kind of a tough cookie um, so that was about as touchy-feely as it got but they did an amazing job of explaining to us and that we would be teaching people about who we were through food I grew up in a tiny tiny. tiny town called Ada, Ohio, population 3,000, give or take. And um, my dad was a college professor there. It's a wonderful place to grow up. But we, and this is the 80s, right? So a lot there's no internet. There's no food network. So just take all that away for a second and remember what it was like to actually be in a tiny little town where no one had really traveled very much. We knew we were different from day one by food, by appearance, by everything. And our way of explaining who we would be, who we were, was um, was through food. And that was from day one. So mom started catering Lebanese food out of our kitchen because, you know, we, we didn't feel weird enough just just like make ourselves like a little bit weirder. Um, but that was a lesson early on. like be proud of it. like don't hide, don't be ashamed. We're gonna bring people in the door, sit them at our table, make this food, and eventually they'll like us. <laughs> it did work. We still felt weird for a really long time. But with all of this international food, you would think that we would also have traveled quite a bit, but we didn't. They were of a generation that was like, you're American safer here. You know, Lebanon had a war the entire time that I was a kid. So it wasn't like we were traveling back to Lebanon. Um, there was also four of us and it was really expensive to travel. And, you know, I, I know America gets a bad rep for not having passports and not traveling. And that is true, but it's also very understandable. We have a huge country. One of my British friends said, you have the oceans, you have the mountains, you have all these things. He's like, I don't really blame Americans for not traveling as much as everybody else. And that was kind of eye-opening because the minute I got a passport, I couldn't be stopped to this day, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I do understand why. Maybe it might, for my parents, it was a little bit harder.
2: I was curious about the Sicilian Lebanese from the collaboration point of view. Right? Like one of the things that you've done in your restaurants, you define regions, you know, rather than borders, and um, you're interested in like multiple approaches to the same thing. Like, was there ever anything where those two cuisines? connected.
0: They coexisted with a good healthy dose of competition. My grandfather, who the Sicilian grandfather, came to live with us actually. So, and he was very old-fashioned and really only ate Italian food. So my mom, for him, actually made quite a bit of Italian Sicilian food. So we were doing red sauce on Sundays. And as much as it was a very patriarchal upbringing in many ways. So my grandfather didn't do the dishes or anything like that, but he did like to cook as long as there wasn't too much work around it. So he taught me, so someone was doing the work, but he was instructing, you know, how to do the pig's feet. He taught me what bone marrow was before that was, you know, a trendy, expensive thing in a restaurant. Um, we were throwing it all into red sauce on Sundays and made homemade pasta together. So no, they competed. They, everyone would fight, you know, over Christmas, like one night was Italian pieces, of seven fishes on Christmas Eve. Mom got Lebanese food on on Christmas Day. You know, that was kind of how we coexisted, And um, really, Italian food was, you know, people were more familiar with it. The Lebanese food became the catering, you know, and the, the real education because that was something very foreign to people around there. Started doing weddings, graduation parties, stuff like that. So I can make tabbouleh for like 300 at the do- like drop of a hat. Just let me know.
2: I think your actual food experience is so extraordinary because you're a restaurateur. Like, you didn't end up in the kitchen, you know, with pots and
0: pans. The child labor was enough. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> like I did my years in the kitchen at a different time. So by now I kind of like running the whole, the whole show. Yeah. So you said like the
2: minute you got a passport, you used it. Like where's the first place that you went?
0: A study abroad. Um, Like many people, I'm sure, I went to the south of Spain and lived in Granada for six months. And that was it. It was, I was terrified. I had never been anywhere by myself. I wasn't allowed anywhere by myself. I went to college in my hometown. I mean, I really, this was huge. Just get on an airplane. And it was life-changing and wonderful. Granada taught me about staying up late and dancing and drinking good wine. And like, it was just such a place that loved life. And I came home, you know, speaking decent Spanish with a whole new European wardrobe. I mean, like, it was like, and I was preaching the gospel of foreign travel. So Spain was my first foreign love, yeah.
2: So you met and married the journalist, David Green, and boy, that really set you off on some travels. Did you know that before you got together or as you were getting together? Yeah, like, signing up for this.
0: is like signing up for Russia. Oh, Lord, no. Well, not the Russia part. But um, David and I met uh, Waiting Tables in Washington, D.C., at barely 23 years old and it was a quick connection yet we loved a lot of the same things you know we liked bars and and chicken wings and all kinds of really basic things but then we also really loved to jump on an airplane and go anywhere together he was a white house correspondent at the time and this was the bush years that's how long ago this was and the white house let the reporters that had to work thanksgiving one year come on the the press charter to crawford texas and spend thanksgiving with your loved one if they were a reporter that had to cover the president on thanksgiving um, <laughs> And I think I was probably like twenty-four or something, and it was just it was a really cool experience. And then the people of Crawford, Texas made Thanksgiving dinner for the press corps. It was really nice actually. They all left their homes, made turkey, so we had like a whole dinner together. It was a really special experience. And then our we got engaged in Istanbul and traveled to, you know, Turkey and Sicily together on our first big trip abroad. And we've never stopped. Yeah, it led us to Moscow years later and hopefully leads us to some, you know, wonderful foreign destination again. But for now we're kind of based between LA and DC.
2: <laughs> and what is that like? To be- you know, being married and being like on the road constantly?
0: Well, had highs and lows. You know, I was pretty independent and worked bartending shifts and went to grad school. And, you know, so I was busy. But there were times that I was ready to feel a little bit more married. And he was still running off to do a really long, say the first hundred days of Obama's first year in office. That was literally a hundred day road trip he went on. He wasn't home at all. And so I insisted when the election was over and he came home essentially, that we go to Vegas and get remarried because I hadn't felt married for a year. So we did an Elvis chapel with a couple of our friends. I'm not joking. I was like, you got to make this up to me. (laughs) And I'm not even that traditional. I don't require that much, but I was like, didn't mean for you to be gone for a hundred straight days and their first year of being married. So it has its challenges with its rewards, you know. So um, David ended up in
2: Russia. Wow. Which, you know, at the time was such a different Russia. I'd
0: love to hear your thoughts on like living in Russia and traveling from there. I do recommend if you would really like to search your soul and think about what you want to do with your life. Siberia in December (laughs) is really just the place to go have your eat, pray, love moment. Um, That's what (laughs) I ended up doing. So while it was sort of another dream job that he was given, you know, and I followed, that's when the unrest sort of started because I'm a worker. Even though he had had these crazy jobs, I had also been working and going to school. And then all of a sudden I got to Russia and I couldn't get a visa I couldn't speak a word of the language, so I couldn't... I always thought I'd bartend. I'd I'd do something. I'd fall back on my service industry skills. Doesn't matter. Russia leveled me. They were like, you can do nothing. You don't matter. (laughs) And I think that started to hit home. And I'm like, I'm a housewife at 30. I didn't mean to do that. We we didn't have kids. We don't have kids. You know, so it was just me and him. And I did. I had a moment, I'm not going to lie, in the kitchen. I'll never forget. In our beautiful... We had a great Moscow apartment. But I just was like making dinner every night and asking him what he wanted for dinner and kind of just falling into this really traditional and growing up in a very traditional family. I planned to never be that. And here I was. And especially as we were about to go back to the States, um, for him to take another awesome job as the Morning Edition host in Washington, I started to really be on edge. I was like, we hey, were going back to Washington. I haven't worked for three years. I thought we were going back to New York where he had, we had been living before Russia, and it just all came crashing down. And it really came to, to a head, I'm not joking, on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which was a trip that David was on to do a story. And I'm like, well, you're not doing this damn three and a half a week trip without me. So I'm on the trip with him. And his amazing producer and translator and we had an amazing journey truly anyone that ever gets the chance as hard as russia was to live in this was an epic journey it was a very cool thing to do but we did it in the winter and so it was really challenging and somewhere in it was december i mean out there in the freezing cold i was just like wow you know what Your true passion is food. You love it. You're going to go back and open a restaurant, which is what you always wanted to do. You just said it would be later. You just kept saying later. That was always my scapegoat. And then I just hit me. I was like, later's now like, and the Russians were very fatalistic, right? Like there was just this attitude of like the worst case scenario is going to happen. I mean, there's kind of a, it was sort of the, there's a couple of really interesting things written about the difference in American optimism and like Russian pessimism. And I didn't realize how American I was <laughs> until I was there. And i like, my Midwestern just, you know, rose colored glasses. And I was like, whoa, this is different. You know, I guess the, the positive twist on that fatalism was, you know what, I might die tomorrow. You're right, guys. You might cross the street and get hit by 10 cars. So why what, what am I afraid of? Let's just go do it. So I did. I got back to the States. I called my old boss at the bar where I met David all those years earlier. And I said, look, you know how to open businesses? Will you teach me to open a restaurant? <laughs> and
2: he did. Had Did you have notes? Like, did you know like what Compass Rose would be? Like, and I do think there are a lot of people who are like, I love food. I'm going to go in the business. And there's obviously lots and lots of different ways. Why restaurants? And like, what was the
0: idea That formed. Let's remember, I had the privilege of time. And um, (laughs) Trans Siberian for a 60 hour trek, like with non stopping, um, gives you some time to really think. You know, all of our travels during that period were really defined by food. All of our memories, while David and I were in random places, sometimes lost, sometimes thinking we were never going to get home, but then we would find some really lovely street stand with someone selling, say, a pizza or a, a baked potato. I mean, it could be anything. And we just stumble across it. We wouldn't be scared anymore. Someone would give us directions and food. And so I started dabbling in what well, maybe this, you know, street food really is the, the 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 thing that we kept coming back to. But so was Georgian food, because that was my huge food discovery. Like, I don't know how I got in that far in life without realizing the Republic of Georgia was a beautiful, hospitable country full of amazing wine and amazing food. I had missed that. And I just was like, wait, America needs to know. And when I came back in, I guess that was 2011, um, 2012, um, even here in New York, I was going all around Brooklyn, like deep into Russian, you know, American Brooklyn, and I could barely find Georgian food back then. And so I really knew that there was there there was a need. And so somewhere between the street food and the Georgian food, I was like compass rose. It's about travel the nautical compass is called a compass rose. We get my name is in there. Okay, you know, that's the winner. And um, it was really something I was passionate about because the Russians had embargoed Georgian wine while we were living there and didn't allow it in the country. So it was this forbidden thing to me. I don't like things that are forbidden to me. I'm like, no, if you don't give me a good answer for well, I can't have something, I'm going to figure out how to get it. You know, you've, you've talked about
2: how the idea that wine would be at the center of politics is completely offensive to you. Share that point of view with the listeners.
0: That's what our big discovery along with Georgian food and culture was that big countries like Russia can actually punish little countries like Georgia by putting an embargo on their wine. And it had never occurred to me as in college, international studies major and all of speaking Spanish and doing all these things that that was possible. And we saw it in you know real life that The only country that Georgia had been exporting to was Russia. So when they cut them off as punishment for a war in 2006, it really hurt the economy of Georgia. On the bright side for us, they started exporting more to Europe and the United States. But it was a slow road because they had different styles of doing wine. Like... Quivery, which is the Georgian amphora, orange amber wines, things that America and even some of Europe was not used to. And so they had, you know, a a long road ahead. And I just kind of decided after seeing that and realizing what the Russians were doing, I was like, wait a second, I'm going to flip this on its head. I'm going to go back. I'm going to sell as much Georgian wine as I possibly can. It's my little Putin protest and, you know, see what happens. And since then, obviously Georgian wine is a lot more available. I worked closely with amazing importers and exporters and even the Georgian, government has supplied a lot of money and funding to promote Georgian wine around the world. The only country I've ever been to that when I went and got my passport stamped to get in the country, they handed me a bottle of wine. (laughs) Are you joking? Is this a trick? If I take the wine, are you going to arrest me? And they're like, no, 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 there's a, there's a wine festival. You should have our wine. So free wine and immigration. I mean, come on. Well, Compass Rose was just a gigantic,
2: gigantic success. And what did you learn in opening that first restaurant that you've now applied, like, multiplied?
0: I think it's a feeling of being good at something. Like, it's it's a funny, simple thing, right? There's nothing that profound. It was like, oh, I think I'm good at this. And it really makes me happy, and I feel like myself, like, really like myself. And I think in Russia, I had felt like I lost that. But I think I also changed, and so I had to find something new. I was working in public policy. I wanted to change the world. Um, But I think I, with all that time to kind of ponder and search my soul, I realized you actually can change the world with food too. And you just change the world a little bit by getting more comfortable in your skin. And uh, Compass Rose was that for me. How would you define the change to gain the confidence? Well, there was struggle. I'm not saying that everyone has to struggle. But I think in, in my journey to it was the fight to open the restaurant. It wasn't easy. Finding capital learning to ask people for money. That was my Achilles heel. I hated asking for help. But then I realized it's not help. You're investing in me. Like it's an investment and it's an honor to be asked. And I'm going to give you your money back and then some, but I can't tell you how hard it was to come to that. (laughs) Like it's easy to say, but to actually do was a whole nother, another thing for me. So learning that I was someone and something that people should be invested in that took work anxiety and stress and talking it out to my poor husband all the time. Like, I don't want to ask your your dad for money. I don't want to ask my dad for money. I don't want to ask our friends. But it was all friends and family that did fund the first restaurant. And that gave me an enormous amount of confidence once I realized that people believed in me. And then it was fighting for my liquor license. Um, Those out there that have gone through this experience in cities like Washington is very difficult. And Compass Rose is in an old row house attached to a residential home. So to say you are going to sell alcohol, and play music was a challenge, and then some, and arguably reasonable to some extent. But then there were some people that were not reasonable, and they came at me. And I truly believe, because I was young and a woman, one of them even said she was going to open a brothel. Can you imagine? Like, well, that's why it's a house. That's why she wants a house. It's gonna if she's a girl trying to open a business. I mean, I'm not joking to my face. It's on public record. I've never really had to stand up in front of people that openly disdain liked me and were trying to hurt me. And actually calmly in front of them say, again, you better have confidence that I know what I'm doing. Trust me. I'm going to, you know, make the neighborhood proud, all of these things. But for a people pleaser, those of us in hospitality, lots of us, right? We'd love to make people happy. Knowing all these people were mad at me, it was a huge challenge. And if I hadn't found my voice, there was no way anyone was going to give me a liquor license, money, anything. So that was sort of the journey, but it was the struggle that finally, you know, kind of beat it out of me and was like, actually believe in yourself or no one else is going to.
2: I love that the struggle beat it out of you. Cause I think people don't often don't want to struggle. They're like, if I'm good at this thing, it's not going to be
0: hard. Maybe if someone had actually told me how hard it was gonna be, I don't know if I would have done it. But I went in pretty, you know, wide-eyed and innocent. And in the end it was, you know, the best thing I've ever done. And and that is where I got to the second one because I really one really practical reason was at Compass Rose, I wanted live fire cooking. And another thing the city wouldn't let me do was have live fire cooking. And so the kitchen was inside. But I was determined that my next restaurant would be fire. And it might on, it is still inside, but I do have a big fire. In fact, it's all we cook on. We only have one other appliance. Everything else is open fire cooking. So I got it and then some.
2: (laughs) I read that, you know, you went in and you're like, is there a hole in the ceiling? And they're like, yeah, there's a hole in the ceiling.
0: Like, I'll take it. Does that (laughs) hole go to the roof? (laughs) And they're like, yeah, why do you care? I'm like, because the hood equipment will go through and it'll save us $50,000. And they're like, why do you think like that? I don't even know. Um, But yeah, and I really wanted to do food that I, you know, what really was heart. And soul food for me, and that was Middle Eastern food. And so um, we decided to really honor the women in my family who had taught me to cook, taught me about hospitality. And then, as much as I'm Lebanese American and I love Lebanese food, I really thought there would be power and pulling from the entire region because there's more diversity in ingredients. At this point, I had traveled to North Africa. I had traveled to the Caucasus. I knew that there were similarities in the food, but that there were more peppers in Morocco and that Georgia brought in some really cool ingredients like blue fenugreek and things that would not have existed if we were just doing Lebanese food. So we went to five countries, did a research trip cooking with all women in their homes, no restaurant stages, none of that. We cooked with women in in their family homes who were so gracious and kind. And they let us into their homes and cooked for us like we were royalty. And we brought a lot of those recipes back to Maidan. And hopefully we still honor them every day when we make it because it's, it's for them that we do. In the
2: places where you were traveling there isn't much of a restaurant culture right or there hasn't been i mean who knows in the future but but basically there's keepers of the food and keepers of the flame and and uh, how did you find the people and what were some of your favorite experiences in people's homes or tents
0: well dc is just such a beautiful exciting city full of people that are from somewhere else or are you know only living in dc temporarily like for the world bank for the imf you've got every embassy is there you know so i was very fortunate um, between guests from Compass Rose who, again, work in all these different countries, from voting rights work to democracy building, like they just Once you asked, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I have a friend in Tunisia. Let me just set you up. (laughs) And not a joke, one woman did democracy building in Tunisia. And she said, oh, yeah, I actually have a friend who's like, she's writing a cookbook in English on Tunisian food. Do you want to meet her? (laughs) I'm like, "Um, yes, yes, I would like to meet her. Thank you so much. To using a lot of our um, foreign correspondent, you know, the the time that David was a foreign correspondent, we made a lot of friends who are still living abroad. And they were able to connect us with people. And then when we were on the ground sometimes, we would just meet new people. We met a guy. In Tunisia, who said his aunt made really good charmoula? Well, we'd like to go to her house. It was five hours away. We drove from Tunis (laughs) to Sfax for one. Type of chermoula, and then we drove back. So a ten-hour journey, um, but I wouldn't have changed it for the world. It was amazing, and just kindness of their hearts. And you had no idea who we were. Taking the team to Georgia, where we did all of our bread baking. We have a toné. We call it a toné. It's a tandoori to most people, but in Georgia they call it toné. And since the Georgians are the ones that taught us to use it, um, we call it in the restaurant a, a toné oven. So wood-fired, you know, brick oven where the bread is made on the sides of the of the the clay, and it's really hard. And we just did a whole week in Georgia baking bread, but a lot of the women had those in their backyards and would just teach us to make the bread in their kitchens and then would just show us in the backyard how to make it. And so the recipe ended up being a combination of many places. Well, with that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're
2: going to talk about the extraordinary things that Rose has ahead.
1: Support comes from the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Join us for the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit trade show and reception at the Farm Show Complex in Harrisburg on November 14th and 15th. Connect with industry stakeholders and grow the industry together through our 2023 industry planning sessions, industry and legislature panel discussions, success story sharing, professional development workshops, and a research showcase. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, my guest is Rose Private. And boy, if you like to travel and you like food, I imagine you're drooling by now. And if you want to open a restaurant, you know the struggle that it is. So during COVID, you had some time to think. You hatched a ridiculous number of plans, at least from
0: my perspective. Uh, Let's maybe start with Go There, the wine project. I have never sold wine retail. I've always sold wine in the restaurant with an experience and a human behind it. And so now I'm selling it direct to consumer. Um, My husband and our very dear friend joined forces. They left their jobs during COVID and um, wanted to start doing some cool social impact work. And we've always had this cool wine program at the restaurants that started with Georgia. But that knowledge that Georgia was vulnerable in their wine industry, once I looked into it, I realized actually a lot of the world is. Like a lot of the world makes really cool wine and America doesn't know about it. And if we actually bought more, we could be helping their economies. Countries like my own Lebanon, um, Bolivia, um, Georgia, Armenia—I mean, it goes on. And once you look into it, you're like, why in America do we not know about these winemaking cultures that have been doing it for thousands? I mean, the Phoenicians were making wine in Lebanon. Georgia's been making it for 8,000 years. I I will constantly preach that it's just geography and you know Western European dominance and money. I mean, Georgia was. Occupied by the Russians. They had no control over exporting anything. And so, Go There is intended to just be a platform and a way to amplify the voices of really cool winemakers. And what we really want is for people all over America, not just in DC or New York or Philly, where you can go to a little wine store and find these wines. We want you to be able to get it anywhere in the country. So, direct to consumer you know, buying it on the internet and arriving on your doorstep seemed to be a really good way to do that. So that's what we set up. If you go to our website, you're just, you're going to meet the, the winemaker and hear their story, which will educate you very quickly and be, you'll be inspired instantaneously. Of course, it's also a really good way to not feel guilty about drinking some wine too. You're like, <laughs> I, I, did, I, did, I did well today. But what we realized working, you know, as far as price point, um, what we realized quickly is there's a lot of these really cool boutique winemakers But the way imports work, to your point, they have to hit a certain price point. And then to get a cheaper price, you have to have more production, right? And that's why the big houses of France and Spain, that's what you see. Um, But once you realize that if you find the right importers, and and we have, who are also mission-driven you actually realize that you can do it on a small scale and start to make a big difference. And so, for example, my uh, Syrian winemaker who's living as a refugee in Lebanon, um, Abdullah Rishi, an amazing human being, um, and his very first vintage of his Dar Rishi wine— we bought, my dad bought the whole palette because we realized quickly if he didn't sell all of it, he wouldn't have enough money to make more the next year because you're always a year ahead in all of your planning. And I started to understand how it worked. So if people would just commit to investing in smaller winemakers, this, it can be done actually. And, you don't make a great margin on wine, though. I'm not going to lie. Like, even with all of these things taken into consideration, the Georgians really deflate the price of their wine for the quality and the work that goes into it because they know the U.S. market is not going to buy a wine they don't know for the actual price point. You can get away with that with an Italian wine or a French wine, but until there's more credibility, people aren't going to pay it here. So a lot of people are just taking the hit and not making what they should actually make just to get it out there. Um, Mexican wine, I've heard the Mexican government apparently makes it very hard to get the wine out. Um, So the price is inflated as well. So I think um, there's a lot of concessions made just for awareness and brand building, and then I hope over the years, obviously, that that will correct itself.
2: And the characteristics of the wine? Like, I feel like the way we think about wine is so Eurocentric. I mean, everything starts with the noble grapes and sort of goes from there. And there's so many other grapes in the world. And there's so many other fermented beverages in the world. When we're talking about the wines in the areas that you mostly import from, is there a characteristic that is similar to what the Eurocentric wine drinker expects, or is it sort of a different mindset in the wine making itself?
0: Um, I think it's both. I think you know, countries like Georgia proudly still make their wine in very traditional methods and have basically just forced <laughs> parts of the world to learn about it. And And they've worked so hard that Psalms have started talking about it here in the US and in Europe. And now we have amber wines and amphora wines that are, are finally becoming, while still a little limited, I think, to bigger coastal cities, they're becoming a little bit more um, understood and accepted and actually sought after, right? Like some of them are allocated and hard to get at this point. When you say traditional, some people might think French is traditional, but you don't mean that. Sorry, I should say traditional as in 8,000 years old. Um, Clay jars in the ground, skin contact, you leave the grapes in with the liquid as opposed to separating it or you separate it later. Um, And they're proudly doing that while adopting European methods. So there's still stainless steel fermentation. There's, you know, oak barrels, that's all happening, but they're doing both. In Lebanon, you'll still see the French varietals. They just, they do taste different now that they've been growing in Lebanon in an entirely different climate with an entirely different terroir for all of these years. Um, So that sometimes is a little easier to sell if it's a familiar grape name then Americans might be more receptive to it. I find that in the restaurant, right? I know the grape is <laughs> going to taste different, but it is at least a grape that they understand. And so like winemakers like Eddie Chami and, and Abdullah, a lot of the wine they're doing is a mix. Um, we're selling right now with go there, a, uh, Sauvignon Blanc Merhoix combination, um, a blend. Merhoix is an indigenous Lebanese grape. I've picked it with Eddie in the mountains. It's a high altitude grape. It grows between rocks and grapevines. I mean, it's just, it's the coolest thing. Um, and he's, just determined to, again, educate others about these indigenous grapes in a way that is not threatening, right? Here, it's with your Sauvignon Blanc, so you'll be okay, you know? And, and, <laughs> and people taste them like, oh yeah, it doesn't taste so different just because there's this great miroir in it that I've never heard of. So um, they're just being creative and the winemakers I'm working with very really and truly are doing this with such deep passion and love for their culture, their history, and for wine that you cannot help but be inspired by it.
2: It's a social enterprise. And mm-hmm. so the winemakers
0: have a piece of the business. Is that how it works? Yes, it is a profit sharing model. In addition to guaranteeing the sales, which is one of the upfront things that we do that is uncommon, if a winemaker says, okay, go there, we're making you a thousand bottles, we pay for a thousand bottles immediately. Whereas typically, you you make a thousand bottles, you don't know if you're going to sell it all, right? So there's that guarantee. So they can be innovative. They can do new things. Buying Gavansa in Georgia wanted to work with an endangered grape that one farmer in their village is growing. And if they don't buy a grapes, no one's going to buy the grapes. So they said, go there. Would you buy these grapes so that we can make this wine? And we're like, so we're promoting a farmer. We're promoting innovation. We're supporting women. Yes, I think so. I think <laughs> we'll take that. Um, you know, So um, our Del shavi is available You know, on the Go There site. So that's part of the enterprise. And the the profit sharing. When we do make a profit <laughs> and we just launched in June so no profits yet, um, we will be sharing all of it with the winemakers. And that is for their long-term projects. Um, Nanda Miso in Cape Town, she wants a storefront. She wants a tasting room. Right now she can't afford it. What we're hoping is with the shared profits that will go towards the tasting room. We'll still be buying the wine and she'll still be making the wine every year but what she really wants is the storefront. So each of the our partners have a long-term goal in mind that the profit sharing is going to go toward.
2: All right, it kind of makes me weepy because the notion of pre-selling the wine is so important. I mean, really, we can't Emphasize that enough. When I was at um Dig In, now Dig Food Group, we would pay for, you know, sweet potatoes, all the sweet potatoes up front. But that's not the model. I mean, the model is like you pay on uh, 30 days, you pay on 60 days, and that poor farmer who has to spend all the money, do all the harvesting is really like at such a loss. It's it makes the system so fragile. And particularly when you're saving extinct grapes or you're trying to help someone like follow their dreams, it's so important to be able to
0: help fund them. It isn't. And once you realize that, you can start to help. But it isn't even something we understood until we dug in, until I was approached about buying a pallet of wine. And I think, you know, Go There is intended to purchase more than even the restaurants can buy in the hopes of, again, educating the rest of the country. So we hope it works.
2: Well, let's support it. Let's give people somewhere between three and five wines that they could buy. Like, is there a starter pack of Go There wines that we're like, <laughs> You're going to leave and you're like, oh yeah, now we're going to have a starter pack of wines. But I mean, I'd love to know what that is.
0: Well, they're all very approachable. So everything we did this year is introductory, truly. So for example, amber wine. I like to call it amber, not orange, though a lot of people know it as orange wine. Georgians have made it very popular. Um, I don't call it orange because in the restaurant, even after extensive training, every so often I have heard a server say, orange wine is wine infused with oranges. And then I almost die like right there. And so I just forbid the word. I was like, no, you're talking about this wine. It has to be amber. The Georgians agree. They're like, because immediately you hear orange and you have citrus notes in your mind and stuff. And there isn't any citrus notes in the wine. So you don't want to, you don't want to sully that, right? So um, we have what we call Gateway Amber. They can be very funky. They can be very intense. You want to eat food with them. Who's the producer? Bayan Gavanza. They're the only winemakers we have from Georgia right now. This is the Krakuna. Krakuna means crispy in Georgian. So it's like a crisp, it, it's almost like a hearty white, um, but it is an amber. But we did that so you wouldn't have to be afraid. So try it. Don't be afraid. And we have uh, Pinotage from South Africa, from um, Nandemiso Again, a grape that's not completely foreign to Americans. Um, it's delicious. It just landed in the country a couple of weeks ago. So that'll hit the website in a couple of weeks. You can pre-order it. Eddie and Abdullah did a pet nat for us. Petnat is also obviously a little bit trendy, but now I think a lot more people are familiar with it and their name is like if someone's going to find it on the site that it's not abdullah oh Eddie. no well the names of the wine sorry we have the grapes but the quote the quote on the front of the bottle we don't actually have like a specific name for it because we wanted the winemaker's words to be the reason oh. that you get it so if you go on the site please read their quotes that's the label on the bottle and that kind of explains to you what the story is behind it otherwise you can look in the back and, and get the grape names but we don't have names for them otherwise because it's really about the stories but the wineries have names Oh, the wineries have names. Mersa Winery. Nondimiso is Seskafile, is the, her label in South Africa. Gavanza, it's Bayas Wine. That is the name of the winery. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. And um, let's talk about Kirby Club. The one that's stressing me out the most because it's going to open next month. Woohoo! hoo <laughs> uh, Fairfax, Virginia, if you're in the area. The Mosaic District is um, the development where we're opening. This is new for us. This is Virginia. This is not D.C., but it is a quick car ride away. Um, there's a really cool, diverse community out there. Um and no Lebanese style restaurant in the neighborhood. So we're kind of doing a more casual version of Maidan. Um no fire, unfortunately, but lots of hummus, lots of love, lots of art um our traditional dishes. But the focus is kebabs. We like to believe that the kebab is a unifying force, everyone loves them. Um we have tons of dipping sauces and all kinds of cool stuff. And we did a cool trip to southern Turkey um last May to to really go to the heart of the kebab, which we believe is southern Turkey and and learn some lessons there. And um the sec, we are doing a second Kirby Club in Clarendon, Virginia, which is in Arlington, which is a little closer to D.C., and that should open the spring of next year. And the name Kirby Club has such
2: a great origin.
0: Oh, it is. Yeah, it does mean a lot to me and my family. It is the Lebanese American Social Club that my grandparents founded um, with their friends in Akron, Ohio, in like the 1930s. It was a very long time ago. But it was intended to keep the people from our village, and please forgive my Arabic, but the village in Lebanon in the Bacah Valley is called Herbi Hanafar. I've been many times, and they kind of knew in America that would be hard to pronounce. So they just nicknamed it Kirby Club. There's a whole constitution about how they pledge allegiance to the United States, but you can only be a member if you're from the village. (laughs) It was their way of, I think, trying to keep together and keep their culture alive. And hopefully their kids would get married. And a few of them did, but my mom didn't marry anybody from the village. But they had social, you know, events during the year, picnics where they made truly lots of kebabs and that spirit of just kind of like the joy of the immigrant experience and, and staying together, knowing where you came from, but still really embracing the place that you're in was the essence of the organization. And so that's what we're trying to bring into our Kirby Club.
2: When when you look at um, the global politics and the intersection with travel, like, what are your hopes and fears for the future?
0: I know people need to be safe. I'm not trying to encourage doing anything dangerous, but... There's just so many misconceptions, right? Even Lebanon, for example, I I have to say, they're going through a terribly hard time. And that was a sensitive travel situation even this year where we're glad to be putting dollars into the economy, but, you know, the currency is almost worthless right now going through their economic troubles. Um, There's definitely a greater divide between the rich and the poor. They've taken in a number of Syrian refugees and that crisis continues. So I I don't want to downplay um, how hard it is for countries like Lebanon. But at the same time, there's so much richness and beauty. And if we don't keep going and bringing back things like wine and food, things won't improve. And I think there'll be more misunderstandings, right? Like I still talk to people that think Georgia's Russia or don't know the difference. Very, very smart people, you know, because it's just not something we were taught in school or paying any attention to. So I don't think there's any better way than just getting out there and and traveling and not being afraid to go off the beaten path.
2: So you you live in a couple of places now, LA and DC. If you are gonna choose one place of the entire globe. It doesn't have to be entirely realistic, but where would you choose to live. And you can pick two places because
0: you can substitute one of each. You guys are going to be really sick of hearing about Georgia by the end of this, but um, western Georgia, there's a little town called Gurria. This is very specific. It's western Georgia, almost the Black Sea. It's this cool subtropical climate area, and I went there. There is wine coming out of there, but there's less than in the eastern part of the country. I dream of opening a wellness resort and living there. I think it would be a really cool place for like a lot of yoga, wellness, healthy food, and it would really help the economy because there's not a lot of work there. So I've dreamt of of moving to Western Georgia. So that's one. And... You know, I joked just this last September when I was harvesting grapes with Eddie that I wanted to to build a house next to his in the mountains because um, a lot of the mountain homes in Lebanon are really beautiful. They're much cooler in summer and you can have, they're not as congested as the city. So I'm still torn though. Would I go to the, by the water or up in the mountains? But in Lebanon, like in Los Angeles, you can do both of those things in the same day. So those are kind of my two top ones. I think
2: the what you brought up before about, you know, the the world has become, it's so small, right? But it's really so important to uh, like share those stories. And I'm so glad that you're, you're doing the work that you're doing. Um, we always end the podcast asking for a shout out broadly. I'm just wondering who your shout out would be.
0: Well, the first person that comes to my mind is Amy Brandwine, a dear friend of mine. She owns Centralina in Washington. She is as badass as they come, and her food is amazing, and she works so stinking hard. She has no business partner. I tell her all the time, I'm like, I feel like just a jerk because I've got business partners, and you were doing all of this by yourself. She just expanded her business um, and opened a constant picolina right across the alleyway from her first restaurant. I know she's thinking of expanding more. She's an amazing human. Please check her out. Amy is my huge shout out. Awesome.
2: Well, thank you so much for coming and joining me. We're actually at Heritage, like in the bunker, <laughs> which makes me so happy to be back. Thank you all for listening, and um, have a great week.
0: This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at Heritage Radio Network. Dot .org
1: slash subscribe.